Welcome to Yes You, a podcast for women to imagine, explore, and step right on into a new paradigm of life and leadership. I'm Annie Carter, a conscious business owner, yoga practitioner, and a big believer that this world needs all women to show up just as we are. This world needs you. Yes, you. Are you in? Let's do this. Hey there, how are you doing? I just wanted to jump in before we get into this week's episode. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Month, and the 15th of October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. And in this episode, I interview the wonderful Claire Chambers. And during the episode, we talk about her experience of having a stillbirth and also a miscarriage. I talk a little bit about my own miscarriage as well. So I wanted to give you a heads up that there are some pretty big things. There were some tears shed in this conversation. So I wanted you to know that upfront. And if it's not for you, then that's okay. But also to say that Claire also shares some really helpful information for things that you can be aware of that can reduce your own risk of stillbirth, information that she wished that she knew during her pregnancy. So as hard as it might be to kind of talk about that, it's the last thing you want to think about, I'm sure, as a pregnant person. For her, it was something that she's become really passionate about sharing because it really can make a difference for people. But she also shares some really helpful suggestions in terms of how we can support friends and loved ones who are going through the loss of a baby at any stage during pregnancy or after birth. It's also a much longer episode than most of my podcast episodes, but really it's a a big topic and it wasn't something that we wanted to rush through at all. Claire also does mention some different resources and things that can be supportive for people going through their own loss or supporting others around and all of those we posted in the show notes as well. So yeah, a bit of a heads up, a bit of a trigger warning for you. And now we'll get on into the episode. So Claire, thank you so much for joining us on Yes You today. It's an honour, thanks. Lovely to have you here. As you know, for the start of each episode, I try to share something that I have learned about First Nations people as a practice for me, just in continuing to kind of learn. And so I asked you whether you might be happy to share something today. So I live on Wurundjeri land and I think like you, I have felt that I really know shamefully little about the land I live on, the traditional custodians. I think it's changing a little bit. I'd like to say a lot in our society um, at the moment, just in terms of people's thirst for knowledge. Um, Obviously, you know, my son at his kinder, they do um, a child's version of Welcome to Country, which um, has been lovely hearing his sort of version of that um, and him as a three-and-a-half-year-old knowing how to say womanjeka. Um, and I read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe a couple of years ago, which was just an incredible um, mind shift in the way that we think about Aboriginal history. Um, 
in this country and, and particularly around the Victorian area as well. Um, but I, yeah, I have a lot of learning to do about it all. So I don't know enough, basically, in answer to that question. I don't think I know enough. Yeah, I think you're right that there is a shift, isn't there? It does feel like it's something that people are becoming more and more aware of the lack of knowledge that we have or that is shared or paid attention to. But it's good to see some people gradually going, oh, hang on, probably should learn some of this. And and having that sort of sense of something's wrong about how little I know. <laughs> yes. Definitely. And as a primary school teacher, I'm used to teaching Indigenous perspective or, or trying to bring in outside help with that, obviously, which is the more respectful thing to do. Um, and I think I remember you talking about the fact that you, you got to grade 11 or 12 before you felt like you actually learnt a lot. Um, whereas I think that's quite different for kids these days. Um, we've still got a long way to go. But um, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, there's a big shift happening. So You know, actually, after I recorded that episode, I did remember that at primary school we did have one session where we had some Aboriginal people come into the school, but it was very much about kind of didgeridoos and spears and clapping sticks and things like that, which was eye-opening in one way, but also quite tokenistic as well. Since then, kind of going that some of those things were actually not part of the culture of Wurundjeri people. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, well, thank you for sharing that. And, yes, once again, thanks for being here. You have been part of EVE pretty much since the beginning. Very early on. Yeah, and also, you know, it has been a real honour to be alongside you for some of the more difficult stuff. And uh, so I'm really grateful to you for being here to to talk about some of that today. So, yeah, it was quite early on in that time, actually, that you became pregnant. I did. Partly joining Eve was, you know, fantastic new local yoga studio. And then I got on board with the run challenge just to get my body ready. I knew I wanted to start trying to have a baby. So getting fit and healthy and my mind ready by doing fitness and yoga was a big part of preparing for the pregnancy motherhood um, journey. And I got pregnant um, whilst I was doing that run challenge. And I've got a really beautiful memory of um, doing that 5K run with the girls from Eve, knowing I was, I was very early on in my pregnancy, but... I was aware, I knew that I was pregnant, I'd done the test um, and it was, it's a really joyful memory of mine of um, doing this run and just feeling physically amazing that I was, I was proud of myself for having learned to run 5Ks <laughs> um, and yeah, it was a beautiful sunshiny day in Melbourne um, and doing this run and knowing that I was pregnant and um, I was excited and it was sort of all ahead of me. Um, yeah, so it's it's a memory I'm really grateful to have. Um, and obviously the story of that pregnancy unfolds, as we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, it's a memory that I definitely hold on to. Yeah, I have a photo that I'm sure you have seen of you quite pregnant in your 5K Eve singlet, which is a really precious memory as well. 
Can you tell us a little bit more about how that pregnancy was overall, how you felt throughout it? So basically I kept jogging. I kept for as long as I could until obviously it gets to the point where, ugh. and I was doing work it. I was doing the dance, um, fitness dance classes with you. Um, I loved dancing whilst being pregnant. Um, and I was doing yoga. I was doing prenatal yoga. Um, I felt physically amazing. I felt the fittest. I was the fittest I'd ever been. Um, I was 32, um, which is young. (laughs) Um, And I just, I felt wonderful. It was a really incredible time in my life. Um, A hopeful, positive, happy time. Um, And all my appointments at the hospital and with my GP, Um, I felt really fortunate. I kept being told you have a textbook pregnancy, everything's fantastic, everything's spot on, everything's fine. Um, And getting past that 12-week point, um, which I think we, we sort of have drummed into us that if you get past 12 weeks, then you're fine. Um, you're safe and and you're allowed to share the news that you're pregnant with other people. Um, I don't I don't know why that sort of rule came into being um, that someone just decided that that was when women were allowed to share that they were pregnant. <laughs> um, but I've you know since spent a lot of time thinking about how I feel about that. Um, sort of unspoken rule about not telling people you're pregnant um, until you're safe, until you're past that 12 weeks, um, which is what I did. I think I was about 14 weeks before, you know, I shared it publicly on Facebook or whatever. Um, But basically I had had this perfect trouble-free pregnancy um, up until um, it suddenly wasn't trouble-free and... um, I, my whole world changed and I had, I had had no concept that a pregnancy could go wrong um, at 34 weeks, which is when my pregnancy um, ended and um, no one had ever, um, I I didn't know anyone in my circle um, or wider circle who'd had a baby die that late um, in third trimester Um, and no one in the medical circles had ever mentioned that that was a possibility. Um, So I found myself in a completely, it felt like an alternate universe basically to, um, to get to 34 weeks pregnant and I was enormous. I mean, you, you saw me. (laughs) I'm a short person. I was huge. I was just all baby. Um, and I I finished up at work. I started maternity leave um, and just had no concept that anything could go wrong. Um, I was anxious, as most people are, about the birth. Um, and I certainly knew that um, labour is called labour for a reason and <laughs> that, that that's not necessarily smooth sailing. Um, but I felt really in control. I felt um, I'd been doing all my natural birthing, um, you know, sort of practising my mantras and getting my body physically ready for labour and eating really healthily. I 
I thought um, I thought I had it in control, um, and I think that's been a massive shift in my life of um, understanding what we do have control of and um, and what we don't, and sort of trying to work out some kind of acceptance of um, what we don't fully have control of. Um, so. Yeah, so I was sort of five days into maternity leave um, and I woke up at about nine o'clock. My husband had already left for work um, and I thought that's really strange. I normally would have got up to go to the toilet, you know, about 4am because the baby, um, we didn't know what we were having, but um, the baby was kicking um, a lot during the night and I'd normally get up to go to the toilet um, and I thought that's really strange that I hadn't done that. And I just remember lying in bed um, and I just knew, I knew something was wrong. Um, it's that, um, I'm, people talk about that instinct, um, that gut instinct um, and sort of listening to intuition and, um, and I, I just knew something was wrong. Um, and I just remember lying there um, and trying to do some of that positive self-talk. <laughs> I'm a bit of a, um, I like to think it's um, a realist, but my husband often says pessimist. Um, so I think I was trying to um, talk to myself saying, no, of course nothing's wrong, you know, just get up, go to the toilet, have a shower. Um, which I did, um, and I just remember standing in the shower, you know, pressing my belly and begging my baby to move and thinking, um, sort of convincing myself a couple of times that I thought I'd felt movement, um, but then it was like a battle between my head and head and my intuition or my gut, I suppose, of, of feeling like um, there's no movement, something's wrong, um, but my brain trying to convince myself don't be ridiculous. You're 34 weeks pregnant. Like, what could what could have gone wrong? Um, this doesn't happen. Babies don't die. Yeah, you'd had no indication that anything could go wrong or be on alert for something in particular. So it was out of the blue. Yes, and I think you know if people have had a 20 week scan and been informed that um, you know that there might be something a little bit wrong with the baby, then they are on alert. Um, but I hadn't had any of um, any of those sort of warnings. Um, and I went off to the dentist, which is what I had planned for the day, um, and just had this really eerie experience for a couple of hours of being on public transport and having people smiling at me, heavily pregnant woman, um, and sort of having this mask on of smiling back at people and thinking they think they think I have a baby inside me and I do but there's something wrong and why am I not going straight to the hospital and this constant battle in my head of saying I'm not going to the hospital because nothing's wrong because of course of course nothing's wrong um but eventually getting home from the dentist and I rang the hospital and they said, um, have you eaten anything? Just lie on the couch, um, have something to eat um, and check again for movement, which I did and I had been doing. I'd been eating, I'd had a coffee, lots of the things that you sort of hear um, throughout your pregnancy of um, when you want to check on movement, drink something cold, lie down, um, 
So I'd, I'd tried all of those tricks, I guess, um, and I rang the hospital back and said, no, I, I don't feel right, I want to come in. Um, so rang my husband and he came home from work and we drove to the hospital. Um, all the while him saying, um, of course it's fine, of course it's fine. <laughs> um, and me thinking it's not, I just know it's not. Um, mm, yeah, yep. Um, and I think, you know, I'd had eight months of getting to know this baby inside me um, and being aware of um, their movements and, um, yeah, of, of being the um, the only person really to fully know this baby because I spent 24-7 with it. So, um, yeah, I've, I've tried to say to him, no, it's, it's not. I think I was also trying to prepare him on that drive to the hospital um, and, and getting there and um, being taken to fetal monitoring. So they, they strap you in and um, try and find a heartbeat, basically, um, which is something I'd done before. And it felt like a bit of a, a, bit of a game. So I knew something was wrong. So when they couldn't find a heartbeat, it wasn't a complete surprise, um, but watching the midwife's face and her trying to um, not look panicked and sort of, I mean, doing her job, um, but saying, just got to go and find someone. They might have a bit more luck than me. Um, but I think we both we both knew. We were just looking at each other. We both knew. Um, and bringing another midwife in, um, who then had to bring someone else in and have an ultrasound and just felt like we we're going through these awful um, dress rehearsal, I suppose, until the registrar um, comes in and has to be the one to say there's no heartbeat. Um, I'm really sorry your baby's died. Those words and in that moment, you know, you, your life just um, completely shifts, just completely changes. There's the before and the after, basically. Um, and, you know, this guttural scream or cry um, and, and the realisation that um, your baby's still there, <laughs> that you're going to have to give birth to this baby, um, which, um, and I remember saying, do I have to give birth? Which is a ridiculous question, um, really, when you're lying there on the bed. <laughs> um, but it, it's your brain trying to comprehend the fact that um, you're going to have to do something that isn't going to result in what it's meant to. Yes, you'll have a baby, but that baby won't be alive. And you would have envisaged giving birth so much at that point, but not like this. Exactly. So we'd done some birthing classes and this scenario had never been mentioned <laughs> um, in the birthing classes. So, um, you know, I'd thought about um, the kind of birth I wanted. Um, I'd been practising, um, as I said, I've been practising lots of, lots of natural birthing techniques and um, I felt physically strong enough to give birth. We'd written a birth plan. Um, and I, I knew that um, I was willing to let go of some control of the birth plan. Um, I'd 
I'd planned to have it in um, have my baby in hospital. So I knew that ultimately, um, if you know doctors needed to intervene, then that's what needed to happen. Um, but I still had this. Um, I had a birth plan in mind, and I I'd I'd pictured a very different birth to the one I ended up having. Um, the the hospital staff were incredible um, in terms of you know giving us space and a midwife, the the first midwife who checked and couldn't find a heartbeat stayed with us and answered some of our questions. Um, and an obstetrician came and talked us through our options of um, um, of whether we wanted to have a cesarean straight away or wait a little while, wait a couple of days. Um, he was encouraging us to have a vaginal birth um, for the sake of future pregnancies, for the sake of my body. Um, and I'm really grateful that I was given that option. Did you consider other possibilities? I think I did, um, and we chose to spend a day just thinking about things. Um, to be honest, I don't really remember anything about the next day. Um, I had sleeping tablets and I was a bit out of it. Um, we went back to my parents' place. Um, my mother thought it was incredibly cruel. She thought the hospital should have just performed a cesarean straight away. Um, but I think... Um, I think I felt it, w it was one way that I felt a bit more in control of the situation um, and I'm really grateful for having been given that choice and I think um, from what I've learnt um, since this time, so this is 2015, so it's been um, about six and a half years, so since that time, I've learnt um, how important it is to give bereaved parents, um, that's the term used for parents who've ha um, had a pregnancy loss, um, so to give them choice to not just um, say, your baby's died, therefore we take over and do everything for you. Um, I think there is a temptation to do that um, and sometimes medically speaking it's necessary to have a cesarean straight away um, or for medical intervention to happen um, but if possible um, helping with the grieving process and coming to terms with what's happened um, giving people choice and options um, is really helpful and it certainly helped us um, so so that um, we learnt that our baby died on the Tuesday. Um, we came back into hospital on the Thursday morning. So you went home in between? Went home and a bit of a blur that day being back at my parents. Um, but being very aware of ha the, um, the complete paradox of looking pregnant um, but knowing my baby was, was no longer alive inside me. Um, and the and trying to sit with that just for that day was um, agonizing, um, was very traumatic. But at the same time, I think in hindsight it was good to have that space to just to just sit with that and lean into um, the awfulness of it, <laughs> the unfairness of it. 
um, and to have a bit of time to um, hold my baby still in my body. Um, I think I think part of my brain probably thought that it couldn't possibly be true and I was going to give birth and baby was going to be alive. Um, I mean, your brain does very strange things <laughs> in a time of trauma. Um, so um, on the Thursday, I went back into the hospital and was induced. Um, and again, that wasn't something I'd wanted in my birth plan, but um, I had two and a half days of contractions and being in labour um, which was agony but at the same time um, is a really special part of my story um, with this baby um, who was born on the Saturday and we called her Sky, and she was just perfect. <laughs> she was just perfect. Um, so we had, we had these two and a half days of being in labour with her um, and I got, to, I got to practice some of my natural birthing techniques. I got to... I got to be proud of what my body could do, and um, and it was it was a really actually a really beautiful experience and really empowering, um, and I'm so grateful I got to do that for her and with her um, to give birth to her, and um, and that the hospital supported me in that, um, and I know that doesn't happen for everyone who goes through a stillbirth. Um, I've heard some horror stories, but we are so grateful that we had um, we had um, a, one specific midwife who chose to be part of our story and um, to help us deliver Sky. Um, I mean, what an incredible person. <laughs> what an incredible profession, really. Um, so we were so fortunate to have... Um, to have people in the hospital who, um, sadly, this is part of their job. Um, I think midwives and obstetricians are fully aware of how um, how common it is. I think obviously stillbirth, it is rare, but um, but at the same time, there are six stillbirths a day in Australia, about two or three a day in Victoria, and that statistic hasn't changed for about 25 years. Yeah. Did I read that it's higher than the road toll? Yes. Is that right? Yeah. I couldn't believe that. So the definition for a stillbirth is a baby that dies in utero after 20 weeks. In some other countries it's after 24 weeks, but in Australia it's after 20 weeks. Um, prior to that um, it's called a miscarriage or a late-term miscarriage. Um but there's sort of an arbitrary line in Australia at 20 weeks that if the baby dies after that, um, there, there has to be a funeral um, or, you know, a burial or a choice to um, cremate. Um, so, yeah, again, it's a bit of an arbitrary line. But, but it's, yeah, by the time I gave birth to Skye, it was, um, I was 35 weeks pregnant um, and I held this perfect little baby girl in my arms and we were given um, hours in the room, just my husband and I and Skye, and um, to hold her and to look at her um, and to really come to terms 
<laughs> with what we'd been through because I obviously spent a few days just focused on um, on the birth. Um, and, yeah, when you're having contractions, it's a bit hard to think about anything other than the physicalness of having contractions and getting through the pain. Um, but I think... I think that process was really cathartic as well of being able to channel some of the emotional pain and mental pain of knowing my baby died into the physical pain of labour. Um, and um, and I had this this juxtaposition, um, and I, knew, I know you've talked about this in a past podcast episode of um, being so proud of my body and the fact that we'd been fortunate enough to get pregnant and to make this perfect baby and the fact that my body could give birth to her um, and that I'd prepared it, I'd done everything I could to do that, um, to, to eat healthily, to be healthy and to, um, to prepare myself mentally for giving birth. And I was really proud of myself for that. Um, and proud of my body um, and really, really excited. And I had this sense of wanting to share with the world that oh, we've got a daughter and we've called her Sky, um, named after a, a Scottish island that I'd visited and loved. Um, and, and I wanted to share that I'd given birth and how crazy is giving birth and labour and... <laughs> um, but then my brain would sort of remind me, but hang on, Sky's dead and you can't tell people that. That's shameful. Um, people don't want to hear about a dead baby. Um, I'm very comfortable saying the words dead baby because that's, that's part of my story now for six and a half years, but I'm well aware that other people don't like hearing that. Um, it's very confronting because that is not what a baby is meant to be. <laughs> It's not what we imagine. We think birth, exactly, joy, celebration, new life. Exactly. So we had five days in the hospital of me just flipping between this excitement that we'd finally got to meet this long-awaited baby and I had a daughter um, and then a second later, of course, my brain saying, but she's dead and how are you going to face the world? How are you going to tell people? Um, what are people going to think? Um, parents, a parent's job is to protect their child um, and you failed um, and your body's failed at that. Um, so, so sitting with this juxtaposition of being so proud of my body and getting through labour, but then instantly thinking, but I must have done something wrong. Um, and my body's let me down and um, somehow I've, I've killed my baby without knowing it. Um, so this deep sense of shame and um, horror and blame and guilt, um, which, was, which was pretty much all coming from me. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to just have incredible support from family and friends um, and, you know, the midwives saying, this isn't your fault, this happens. Um, and me, you know, getting onto the internet and finding out, oh, my goodness, it does happen. It happens all the time. But we just don't hear about it. Um, 
people don't talk about it. Um, I think I think that is changing a lot, um, but I think it still is very taboo. Um, this idea that um, if something goes wrong, then it must be your fault. You must have eaten the wrong thing. You must have eaten soft cheese or maybe you smoked or maybe you drank alcohol. There, there must be something that the mother has done wrong um, that has led to this. Even on the other end, maybe you exercise too much. Exactly, exactly. So there was a lot um, to unpack that I'm, to be honest, that I'm still unpacking six and a half years later. Um, we did we did get told at the hospital that um, it's um, about, oh, I'd say, 30 to 40% likely that we wouldn't find a cause for why she died. Um, so the, the bulk of stillbirths, there is no known cause or no known reason um, for why a baby's died that late in pregnancy, um, which was our situation. We went back six weeks later and had this massive file um, and basically were told we've done an aut- autopsy, we've done blood tests, We've um, looked at your placenta. Um, there's just no no reason that we can find. And you just sort of think, you know, this is one of the top maternity hospitals in Melbourne, in Australia, you know, um, a developed nation, 2015. What do you mean you don't know why my baby died? Um, so I, I think the past six and a half years has just been one massive learning curve of realising how little control um, I have over some parts of my life. Um, And that's a very hard thing to get your head around, I think. Um, I think we love that idea of being in control of as much as possible. Um, I think COVID these times are definitely teaching us that yes, common sense, and there's stuff we can have control over, but there's also so much that we don't. Um, That's beyond our control and um, beyond blame and guilt and our fault. Um, It's just the world we live in. Yeah. I remember you and I talking actually probably a few times (laughs) over the years, but about the sense that we have that we can control. It's moments or experiences like what you have been through that actually just kind of show what an illusion that all is in the first place, that while we may kind of get ourselves for a whole lot of life, how much control we do have these big moments where it's just like, Oh wow. No, (laughs) we don't. It's terrifying, but it's also been quite empowering for me to, and it's taken me a long time to get to this point, um, attending support groups, talking to other bereaved parents, um, seeing a psychologist. It's taken me a long time to to get to the point where I can accept that I don't have full control over everything um, and to lean into that, that it's scary, but it's also, um, it's also freeing in the sense that... Um, you can only do so much. Um, and I think I, I had to go into subsequent pregnancies with that in mind that um, I did everything right in Sky's pregnancy. Um, 
and it it still wasn't enough and I don't know why it wasn't enough. Um, maybe one day I'll find out, but at the moment I don't know. Um, but that sense of there, I can control what I can control. I can keep myself healthy um, physically, mentally, emotionally, um, but um, but ultimately the pregnancy might end in a living baby or it might not. Um, and that um, that is part of um, anyone's experience of getting pregnant, um, of deciding to become a parent. Um, and I think our society is quite good at um, not focusing on the risk um, and the, the um, difficult, scary parts of being pregnant and giving birth. Um, we're very good at focusing on the, um, the you know, insta-worthy parts of it, I guess, which is the the beautiful, perfect birth and um, what the nursery looks like, um, you know, which is all wonderful and it's part of the joy and the fun of being pregnant. Um, and I would never want to take that away from someone, but but obviously I, I had to come home to an empty house and to um, the baby's room that I had to dismantle um, and... I'm really I'm I'm grateful that we were given as much time as we needed in hospital before we left. Yeah, can you tell us about that? How long were you there and with Sky? So we had five nights in the hospital and we were basically able to do that because we had access to a cuddle cot. Um, some people call them cold cots. Um, and they were fairly new at the time. The hospital only had two. Um, and so they're um, a little bassinet, like a Moses basket, um, that Sky could lie in. Um, and obviously she um, had passed away. So bodies that are no longer alive start to disintegrate. So in order to um, keep her in the room with us, we had to keep her in this little um, bassinet basket, um, which was temperature con controlled. So... Um, Prior to cuddle cots being in, available, um, babies were kept in the morgue, so in the basement of the hospital. Um, and if you wanted to see your baby, you had to ask a midwife to go and get the baby from the morgue. Um, and there was a lot of um, rigmarole, I suppose, um, that had to happen just to be able to see your baby. Um, whereas we were so fortunate to have Sky in the room with us for those five days. And that's such a shift as well. Like my ex-mother-in-law, she had had a stillbirth and she never laid eyes on the baby. Like it was whisked away and that was sort of meant to be for her well-being. But I can't imagine like how do you process that where you don't even get to kind of see, let alone touch or sort of spend that time. So, yeah, for you, like, how important was that to be able to have that time and to see her and hold her? It was vital for my connection and my processing and my grieving. And I think only really with hindsight of the fact that um, lots of my close friends and family didn't ever get to meet Sky on the outside. Um, and, and for other people in our lives, um, she didn't really necessarily exist, um, if that makes sense, because people didn't see her physically. Um, whereas for me, I'd carried her for eight months. Um, I knew that she was 
<laughs> alive, a real baby. So to actually meet her and to to get to um, bathe her and do footprints and handprints, um, to get to name her, hold her, um, look at her beautiful hair um, and her little fingernails that were like mine, um, to, to basically have five days getting to know her before we had to say goodbye um, and having the midwives um, come into the room and greet her in the in the cuddle cot um, and treat my husband and I as parents, which is what we were, um, even though we were put on a different ward away from the sound of living babies crying. Um, but to have that respect shown to Sky and to us as parents was incredible, um, really empowering and really healing. Um, and, and we were able to have a service at the hospital um, when we had to leave her, which was obviously one of the hardest things I will ever do in my life, um, having to leave my baby's body at the hospital. Um, and we chose to have her buried um, and, and we had to have a funeral. Um, and I think the first, the first few months, it was um, like being in a bubble of adrenaline, I suppose, of working the trauma and adrenaline out of my system um, and there were things to plan. Um, obviously our life was suddenly on a very different pathway um, and there were decisions to be made and um, but coming out of the that initial adrenaline trauma period and then suddenly realizing um, what do I what do I do now? <laughs> um, and, and learning to live daily with the knowledge that my baby had died um, and how much I wanted to um, get back out there to see people to, did I go back to work or not? Um, just having to re reinvent myself in a way of how do I be this new person um, who who has been through this traumatic experience and who doesn't have a living baby to show the world. Um, and, and I think anyone who's had a close, um, cl close contact with death would know that it does, it does really change the way you think about the world. Um, and, and it's a very uncomfortable thing to talk about. Um, I think, friends and family, not all obviously, but um, some people found it really um, horrifying, the idea that we'd spent five days <laughs> with um, a dead baby in the room with us. Um, and I struggled with that the first night I was there um, because that's that's not something our society is used to again. Um, I know in other cultures um, it's really common to sit with a dead body and to have an open casket at a funeral or but it's not something that I was ever used to. Um, and, and so even just going through that experience of um, feeling like that was a natural, normal thing for us to have chosen, um, which obviously not every bereaved parent chooses to do, um, which is fine, but just yeah, processing all of these new experiences we had and, and what do I do with that? Um, and what do I want to do with that? How do I honor sky how do i make sure the world doesn't forget about her i won't ever forget about her but um 
I wanted to make sure other people didn't either. So yeah, it was a, a lot to work through in the days and the months and the years since. Like you say, you know, it obviously impacts you and your partner the most, but it also does impact your family, your friends, kids that you teach as a primary school teacher, all of that. Like, How, how much did you kind of feel a sense of responsibility to kind of protect them or support them through their own handling this grief? I'm fortunate to have had and still have incredible um, support networks with family and friends. Um, but there were definitely times when um, I'd be explaining to someone where my baby was and what had happened, where you would find yourself hugging them and sort of patting them on the back and saying, oh, it's okay, um, rather than um, rather than saying, actually, it's not okay. It's it's awful. And thank you for crying with me. Um, but you just sort of go, go into those tried and true expressions of, oh, it's okay, it's fine, I'm okay, rather than being honest and just saying, no, I'm not okay. And this is not an okay situation. It doesn't have to be made neat and tidy and everybody's fine. Like. Everyone's fine, exactly. And I think there were definitely people who wanted to wanted me to be fine and grief is not a comfortable um, position for anyone to be in Um, and there's no easy fix Um, and I think um, we're still in that mindset of we just want people to be better and to be um, to be okay and to not cry and to just get back to normal Um, and thankfully I had Um, people in the support group I was going to who were able to say, you don't have to be fine for a long time (laughs) because you won't be. So don't rush this. Yeah. I mean, it's so absurd, isn't it? There's this instinct in us to sort of go, be okay. Like I want to be able to hug you and you say, oh, thank you. Or I want to say the perfect words and you say, oh, that made all the difference and now it's fine. But it's madness to think that any one action or word is suddenly going to make it okay that you had lost your beautiful baby. Yeah, it it can't be fixed. Um, But I do think from experience and having um, since worked with a lot of bereaved parents, there are things that you can do and say to help people um, in that situation. Um, Basically being, being there. Um, you don't have to say anything because, there, like you said, there isn't the one expression or, or word that is going to fix anything. Um, but actually being there in someone's life, whether to listen or to just show up and physically be there with them, um, is incredibly um, helpful. I think, um, you know, when, when you do have a baby die, um friendships do change and you do lose friendships um, and relationships and um, which is understandable and it's it is hard for everyone Um, and there are certainly things that aren't helpful to say (laughs) um, which are those sort of trite throwaway lines like it's okay you're young you can get pregnant again you can have another baby Um, which are not things that you would necessarily say to someone if they lost their life partner or something. Oh, whatever, it's fine. You can get married again or you'll find someone else again. Um, I mean, I'm sure people sometimes do say that, but um, 
But I think sometimes when when people on the outside haven't um, got to know a baby that's been growing inside your body, um, it is a lot easier for them to think that that baby doesn't exist. So I can understand how some people sort of approach pregnancy loss with those expressions. Um, it was meant to be, obviously the, the baby wasn't well and, you know, um, it's good that it happened now and not later. You know, the, the things, I was fortunate not to have many of those things said to me, um, but I've certainly heard them all from other people sharing them with me. Um, so there are definitely things not to say. And there's um, there are lots of sites on, um, on the internet that um, will talk you through helpful things to say. Um, so the Sands Red Nose website and Still Aware. And there's a lot out there if you search for it um, of things to do and say to help people um, in this situation. But... I think um, ultimately it's just being there for someone and um, and leaning into the grief and the messiness and the awfulness with them, um, as uncomfortable as it is. My mum, her father died when she was a teenager and I remember her telling the story of, of friends crossing the hall at school to avoid her because they were just so uncomfortable with, I don't know what to say, is what she would assume because they never actually said anything, but assume that that's why and they just avoided her. So I feel like even just from hearing that from, you know, a young age, I've always kind of had that in the back of my mind when there's an experience of grief and, and loss that actually avoiding isn't the way forward, <laughs> like just to kind of, yeah, I certainly don't feel like in these sorts of times that I have all the right things to say at all, but I have at least that bit that's like, I'm not going to hide from you. <laughs> like, I'm not going to avoid you because it's uncomfortable for me right now. Yes. And you certainly did that for me. But I, I think that with pregnancy loss, when um, a mother is going through that sense of shame and guilt um, and and silence having given birth or miscarried in silence um, when babies are meant to scream they're meant to cry when they're born so to have that silence compounded by people avoiding you um, or not wanting to talk about your baby or not say their name not acknowledge um, that they lived they were alive um, for a set amount of time is just so damaging even if you just say I don't know what to say. It's not how things are meant to go. I remember it so much when I think about that time and with you and at Eve. Eve was really, compared to now, really little at that time, like in terms, it felt like a, you know, quite a small, tight-knit community. So people knew you and they had watched you grow and it would have been like a week or two before that that we had our first year birthday party of Eve and I remember you standing up at that and saying and holding your belly and saying this is an Eve baby and us all feeling like yes she's our baby like yes we've we're part of that and that being such an honor and I remember after you gave birth and you sent me a photo of you and Luke your partner and and beautiful precious sky and I remember just having this real sense of if sky had been born alive, we would be printing out a photo and putting it on the notice board because everybody would want to celebrate because we're community. And it just felt to me like, I don't know how to do this, but I do know that at this point, we don't suddenly not become community. If she was an Eve baby 
two weeks ago, she's still an Eve baby. But so I remember, you know, trying to tread sensitively because we had women right there who were 35 weeks pregnant themselves and all these different women. But at the same time, I don't want to not acknowledge what's happening here, what's happened and to, yeah, celebrate that Sky has been born but also grieve that she's been lost. The vast majority of people were like, oh, my gosh, yes, what can we do? Like how can we be there for Claire in this time? And there were, I don't know, really one that stands out in my mind who was really uncomfortable and kind of was like, why are you giving any airtime to this? You're making people scared and you're making people anxious. And I remember just having this yeah, conversation basically saying that. I'm like, look, we don't stop being community just because things get hard, like if we're in it for the good times, we have to be in it for the hard times. But it's a tough one to navigate. It is. Even emailing people the photo was something I had to wrestle with. Uh, My instinct was, this is my beautiful daughter. And we've had these incredible photos taken for us um, by a volunteer photographer through um, the charity Heartfelt. So she, Sky was born on the day before Mother's Day, but this beautiful woman gave up her own Mother's Day lunch um, the next day to come and be with us and to take photos of Sky and us with Sky. But um, I haven't shown those photos to a lot of people. Um, I mean, we have them up in our house, um, but there are a couple that I've certainly shared um, over the years. But um, but that sense of, as you were saying, this, this is my daughter. Um, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that, you know, if babies are born alive, everyone looks at photos of them. Um, but, I, but I am very aware of the fact that um, it is very uncomfortable and it's not something that we're used to doing to, to have a visual in our face of a baby that's died and that that is uncomfortable. It's interesting to me that you say that because I think being at Eve a lot of women, a lot of pregnancies, a lot of babies. I get sent a lot of photos of people with their babies. And the photo of you with Sky, I feel like I can still see it crystal clear in my mind because it meant so much in that time, you know? Yeah, it is a relatively new thing in our culture to to give parents that time to be with their baby who's died because, yeah, babies did used to get just taken away. Um, up until really not that long ago. Um, so I feel really fortunate that Sky has been born in a time where people are a little bit more accepting of um, of grief and the need to be with a body um, and to have time to process that um, and to make connections. Um, but I, I'm very aware that even to this day, I do still feel like um, my presence near a pregnant person, um, I, I still feel uncomfortable <laughs> being around heavily pregnant people, um, even though I've since been heavily pregnant again myself, um, but also feeling a bit like I'm cursed and if, you know, um, I'm somehow contagious, so if I go near pregnant people um, and and I think um, that's, again, more something that comes from me as opposed to other people um, making me feel like that. But 
But you do, um, when you have had a pregnancy loss, um, I think you are this sort of walking embodiment of a, a, a reminder that things can go wrong. Um, and I understand um, that people don't want to be reminded of that a lot of the time. No one does. I mean, but you have become like an advocate for educating women around the risk of stillbirth, haven't you? Like, and I, and I guess that's a tricky thing to do because obviously there's that side of it that's like, don't talk about it. You don't want to just make someone scared or make someone stressed or anxious about it. But at the same time, if there are things that they could know that could potentially make a difference. It's like, oh, my gosh, yeah. So what's that been like? You know, just embracing this sense of there are things that we can control and um, and things that we can't, but to to focus on um, the things that we can control and, and to put energy um, and to be empowered. So I've become involved with um, a charity called Still Aware um, who are all about empowering mums and dads um, to get to know their baby's movements, um, the the rhythm of their baby's movements and if anything changes, to, to go and get checked out, to not just um, think, oh, you know, I'm a first-time mum, I don't want to bother anyone at the hospital, um, to really listen um, to your gut instinct um, and you know your baby best um, and to go and get help to get checked out if something doesn't feel right, um, which is not something that was ever said to me. Um, and I'm not blaming anyone at all. Um, I just think that there is a lot more awareness these days of the fact that um, that women's bodies, like mums, are a massive part of the whole story when it comes to, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say, but I think... Um, Sometimes everything's very medicalised, so it's assumed that only doctors, nurses, midwives, you know, the ones that actually really know what's going on with your baby, as opposed to saying, hey, this is my body and I know my body well and I know my baby well. Um, so, that yeah, the charity that I, I work with um, is all about um, not not scaring pregnant women. I mean, it's, it's scary enough, just the idea of becoming... Um, a parent and being responsible for a baby and having to go through labour, um, pregnancy is an anxious time already. Um, and of course, we don't want to make women more anxious, but it's about being informed and empowered and saying, um, well, I'm already aware of things that I have control over. You know, I'm doing my hypnobirthing or I'm doing my prenatal yoga. Um, I'm eating well. Um, we're already used to that mindset. Um you know, and, and reading all the pregnancy books. And um, so it's just, an, I shouldn't say just another layer, it's an incredibly important layer of, um, and I'd argue more important than avoiding soft cheese, which, you know, <laughs> which you get told again and again, don't eat soft cheese, don't eat deli meats, don't. Um, but those risks do not cause the number of deaths in pregnancy that stillbirth does and yet it's still a bit of a taboo um so still aware um and this idea of having an empowered pregnancy is all about getting to know your baby's movements um from about 24 28 weeks onwards um and if you do feel um, a slowing down of movement but also any increased movement which is what i'd had with sky in hindsight um, but, but at the time, 
I'd just always been told an active baby is a happy baby. So um, a few days before Sky died, I'd, I'd felt this incredible movement and thought, gosh, that's really different, that's strange. Um, but then thought, well, I'm not at work. Uh, maybe she's moved, they have moved like this before and I just haven't noticed because I've been busy at work. Um, but there was, there was something in my body, in my brain that was thinking, that's really strange. But because no one had ever um, empowered me to say, do you know what, that's your baby talking to you. You're your baby's advocate. Um, go to the hospital, get something checked out. Um, and, and again, no blame. Um, I blame myself. I'm still working through that. But, um, but that's why I'm really passionate about letting people know that um, there, are, there are things that you can do to help avoid stillbirths. Um, they will still happen. They will always still happen, some of them, but there, there are things you can do. And there's a campaign at the moment, thankfully government's getting on board with um, the Stillbirth Foundation, Still Aware, Red Nose, um, Sands. So a um, big push, um, it's called the Stillbirth Promise. So it's basically um, just getting people to talk about it and to realise that it, it is a part of um, pregnancy and birth. Um, and there are, there are things you can do, avoiding smoking, obviously, um, sleeping on your side from 28 weeks onwards um, is a really big one. Just making sure um, maximum amount of oxygen and blood flow is getting to your baby during the night um, and, and monitoring movements and just if things change, whether they speed up or they decrease, um, don't just go with the whole... Um, cliche of oh you know once you get bigger the baby has less room to move therefore you won't feel as much movement no <laughs> the movements change but your baby should still be moving the same amount that they always have it'll feel a bit different but they still um they still should be moving even while you're in labor you should be able to feel your baby moving um but i think we've been fed lots of old wives tales basically um that's such an awful expression isn't it but you know just misinformation um you know lie on the couch and drink a can of coke to see if they move um i mean just sort of ridiculous things of you know if if a baby was um was sick or a little toddler was lying on the couch and was ill um you wouldn't just feed them coffee or coke and if they started moving you'd say oh they're fine so why, why would we think that if a baby in utero, if something wasn't right, why would we think that, um, you know, drinking coffee just to get them to move a bit is going to fix a problem? You know, you, you need to go and get, get seen at the hospital and checked out. So, And I wonder if some of it is about not being super connected with our bodies perhaps and having that sense of I guess agency around our bodies in terms of you know the choices that we're making that if the doctors say it's probably fine then it's probably fine so I'm just being silly and then I feel like that coupled with the thing that just makes women play small all the time like don't take up too much space becomes like oh don't go and bother someone at the hospital just because you're worried or that kind of thing that just women don't kind of speak up and go hang on I sense something's wrong. And as you know, I had a miscarriage myself and 
I had repeatedly gone to hospital because it was, yeah, it felt like a bit of a drawn out experience with different bleeding at different times. And I'd gone and they kept on sort of reassuring me until it's this, this and this, like pain and whatever, then just go home kind of. But I had that moment where I knew it wasn't okay anymore. And it was like, I'd been worried for weeks. And then, but at that point I was like, I would be flabbergasted if there is still a heartbeat. Like I knew at that point but even then going into the hospital, they tried to sort of send me home and I was like, I'm telling you, this is not okay. And it wasn't like, that was the point where they, they found there wasn't a heartbeat. And I think sometimes it's that lack of us sort of feeling okay to sort of bother someone with our reality. Exactly. And that's what um, Still Aware is all about saying, um, you are your baby's advocate and don't leave the hospital until you've had all your questions answered. And that someone has um, checked things out and reassured you. That's such a great term, you're the baby's advocate. Like that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I think pregnancy, it's like I'm not yet a parent. I don't yet have responsibility for this child. So you can kind of delay the inevitable a little bit. Um, But the reality is um, you're already a mum or a dad um, and that you are already responsible um, for this child. And yes, that's huge, <laughs> but that's, that's part of being a parent is that, um, as soon as you are pregnant, um, there are things that you can control and, and take care of to the best of your ability, um, and that you are responsible for. So being your baby's advocate, um, which is wonderful and empowering, but also, um, terrifying. Um, and yeah, I've always sort of hated that expression mum to be or dad to be um since sky died because i think no you're you're already you're already mum you're already dad um you've already made changes mentally physically um to welcome this baby into your life um whether they're on the outside or not um and and that um that can be quite a difficult um concept for other people i think um who aren't daily aware of what's going on with the pregnancy um because until the baby is on the outside um other people around you don't really view that um pregnancy as an actual person a baby yeah and don't see you as mother yet yes Yes. So it's, yeah, this juxtaposition. (laughs) Yeah. I had a friend who was quite unwell herself and really longed to have a baby, but wasn't well enough really to go through a pregnancy for a while and had to really tend to her own health for a while. And I remember her saying then that it was her first act of motherhood was to get herself well enough to become pregnant and to to do that well and to be able to care for a baby. And I remember just thinking it's really beautiful that it was like she was seeing herself as a mother already and the best thing that she could do as a mum at that point was something that I guess conventionally we wouldn't consider to be being a mum. Yeah, and I think um, this is getting into murky territory, um, but, I mean, anything to do with women's bodies um, tends to get murky and political and vulnerable. Um, But I think um, with modern medicine, the fact that we can know so early on um we can have it confirmed a pregnancy confirmed so early on these days um you can find out 
the um, sex of your baby, you can have tests done on chromosomes. There's so much information that we can have at the tip of our fingers um, these days with pregnancies. Um, and, and you can be listening out for a heartbeat. You can have a scan at you know six weeks and be listening for a heartbeat. Um, whereas not that long ago, um, babies, the reality of being pregnant with a baby um, wouldn't come necessarily. Um, I mean, I'm sure most women knew very early on I'm pregnant and, and were already thinking of themselves as a mother and, and uh, dreaming and imagining. Um, but nothing was sort of confirmed um, and, and, and until you were showing physically the outside world wouldn't necessarily. Um, but these days, pregnancy or um, the concept of um, this life inside you being an actual baby starts so much earlier. Um, and like you said, for a lot of people, um, it starts just dreaming of and, and planning and getting your body ready. Um, you've already started on that journey. Um, and so when it, um, if it ends, whether it's a miscarriage at six weeks, a miscarriage at 18 weeks, a stillbirth, um, a neonatal birth, um, that's been an incredibly long journey. Um, and when IVF's involved as well, and it, you know, it can be a journey that's been going for years. Um, so it's not, um, it's not just something that's happened in an, in an instant. Um, and, um, and I think, yeah, our society's still trying to grapple with that concept of, oh, well, it's not really a baby until, you know, a set amount of time. But um, I think most women, um, and obviously it's different for every mother um, and everyone grieves differently and everyone um, deals with pregnancy loss in different ways and there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, but, you know, but the medical terms for pregnancy loss um, don't necessarily acknowledge um, that it is a baby um, for all sorts of reasons. But that can be really traumatic for people as well to just have their precious little baby referred to as, you know, products of pregnancy. Um, and it's just dealt with, you know, um, if you haven't um, physically miscarried, if you've needed to have a DNC, it can be very um, traumatic um, and medicalised. And so I think, I think as a society, we've got a long way to go. Um, and... Um, and a lot of work to do to help women through the trauma of pregnancy loss um, and partners as well. But um, but I think we're I think we're on the right path. I think there's definitely a lot more discussion, a lot more openness about it, and it's really hard to be open about it. Um, I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're amazing with it. Well, I it's taken me years to get to the point where I can share Sky's story in the way that I can um, it's still it's still hard obviously um, and I think it's been eased by the fact that I've had um, two living babies I've got two sons um, I, I had a miscarriage the year after I lost Sky, which is was a whole nother layer of trauma how was it to make that decision at that point to try again was that something that you kind of knew soon after Sky's birth that you would do again or yeah how I desperately wanted to be pregnant again I still looked pregnant I had this big pregnant belly um 
but no baby in my arms. So I think part of me desperately wanted to be pregnant again as soon as possible. And then, of course, you're told, don't get pregnant again um, for a few months. Is that for physical reasons or more for... Physical reasons. Obviously, if you've you've had to have a cesarean, you have to wait longer um, physically. Um, Although, you know, if you tend to get pregnant three three months after your loss, then you find yourself um, commemorating the one-year anniversary of your baby dying, but at the same time you're about to give birth to another child so that can be really confronting so I was given some advice around yeah possibly delay but we weren't really ready to start trying again I'd probably say for a good six seven months um and even then I wouldn't say I was ready I wasn't I wasn't sort of saying yay let's get back on the bandwagon you know it was um that was all mixed up with grief starting to try again I just cried and cried cried um and yeah and a lot of that joy and excitement and anticipation and hope had been taken out of it um but I it was something I'd always wanted I'd wanted to be um a mum to a living baby um so I I knew that if I wanted to make that happen I I had to try again um and we, we did get pregnant again. It took us about 11 months to a year um, to get pregnant again. And, of course, I had lots of well-meaning people tell me, just don't worry about it and then you'll get pregnant. Or you're not getting pregnant because you're still too sad about Sky dying. So you've got to stop. You've got to stop being sad. Oh, about up. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the whole, amazing friends and family. But you do get told all sorts of things when we did get pregnant again um I really didn't tell very many people I was convinced it wouldn't work um and I I do regret that now I regret not celebrating the fact that we were pregnant again um and I think I've I've got a different approach to it now I just think if you're pregnant and you're excited about it tell whoever you want to tell um because you don't know how long that little baby is going to be part of your life um, and um, whether they make it to nine months, the whole pregnancy or not, um, they're a part of you and a part of um, your community um, and celebrate that. Um, Obviously, it's a very personal decision, um, but I miscarried at 14 weeks with that, um, that little baby and a lot of people didn't know we were pregnant again. Um, and so, again, that was a really isolating, silent time. Um, and that little baby had a chromosome issue called triploidy, um, which I was assured had nothing to do with Sky's death. But, of course, being told one thing and actually believing that they weren't linked is a whole other thing. Um, and, you know, the trauma of miscarrying at home and just that was so compounded by the loss of Sky. Um, yeah, it's a, a whole other story. Um, but then but then trying again um, and having two living sons now. Um, but I'm the mother of four um, and I'm really proud of that. The world only sees my two living sons, but I know that I'm a mother of two daughters and two sons. Um, and, and I've got really comfortable with sharing that and it does make other people feel comfortable, uh, uncomfortable rather, but, um, that's my story and that's who I am. And, 
Um, I think I spent years um, after Sky died and, and we had the miscarriage as well of sort of feeling ashamed and not wanting people to know um, about that messy side of things. Um, and and it does, um, I think some people are very comfortable to share that straight away, but for me it took, it took years to sort of get to the point where I could own that story and be, um, be okay with it. Um, and sort of embrace that sense of, um, yeah, messiness in life Um, and that you can be joyful and sad at the same time, Um, that I can be grateful for and love my two living sons but at the same time feel desperately sad that my daughters aren't here um, physically with us Um, and that that is um that's my journey and it always will be and that um you can hold that joy and grief um side by side it's not nice but it it is it is what it is it's real though isn't it yeah it's it's real real. yeah i remember claire being so impressed and really struck by the way that you knew that it was a possibility that you might have a bit of a a sense of antagonism with your body and a sense of like oh my body's betrayed me and kind of create this real disconnect whereas previous to like throughout your pregnancy and prior to that you had a really beautiful connection with your body and I remember you saying like you know that you just wanted to keep on working on having a loving relationship with your body and so I remember that being part of like you coming to yoga coming back to dance like doing these things that were I guess joyful in your body and that felt like your body doing the beautiful things and fun things and pleasurable things even that your body could do how important was that and and how hard was that it was definitely hard and you were there when I came back for my first and Kathy when I came back for my first yoga class at Eve um and um, I felt able to just sob for a lot of the class up the back. Um, I think I think it was really important for my healing um, because pregnancy is such a physical experience um, and giving birth is such a physical experience. So to actually get re-in touch with doing things to help your body and to be physically in your body, not just stuck in your grief in your head um, was really helpful for my healing. Um, and as you would know, there are so many yoga poses that release <laughs> emotions. Um, so being in a space where you can you can practice yoga or dance and um, people are aware that um, physically moving does release emotions and energy and that it that's okay. You've got to be in this space where someone starts crying during yoga. They're obviously doing the pose right because. (laughs) (laughs) Nailing it. Yeah, it's working. (laughs) And I think also, um, as you said, sort of being caught in this bind of feeling like I'd done something wrong and my body had let me down and, and surely being pregnant and giving birth, that's what women are supposed to do, isn't it? Um, and you're not supposed to have a baby die and I must have done something wrong and there must be something wrong with my body. And um, so I think um, I had to hear from a lot of different people that um, sadly, you know, one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage, that it's, it is a very, very common um 
story and you're not alone um, and often when you do have a miscarriage or a stillbirth um, you do feel like you're the only person this has happened to until the floodgates open and people start sharing their stories with you and you realize actually this goes on all the time and we just don't um, we just don't focus on it in the way and I mean I guess why would you um, but but again like we we want to focus on that the happy parts of life rather than the messy sad bits well it's that sense isn't it of like stories coming out of the woodwork I imagine in sharing your story that you just like you said open the floodgates to other women sharing their stories I know again just thinking about me at Eve we get to be around all the pregnancies and all the births but also all the miscarriages often because people will tell us because they're coming to a yoga class or a fitness class they'll tell us before they tell even their friends and family so I feel like we kind of get to hear about a lot of miscarriages and I really notice so often women will tell me I had a miscarriage and I'll say how are you and because you know sometimes women are kind of like I'm okay I'm moving on and sometimes it's like really big so I never want to kind of presume but I often will find that women will say um you know I'm okay and I'll say oh when I had a miscarriage I found it was really big to process and then the story comes and it's only in knowing that I've experienced it and that it wasn't just completely small for me it felt like a big thing that then they feel comfortable to share and so it does make me think oh there's just a lot of us who are all kind of going um it's okay don't worry like I won't share it but the stories are out there and we're living in this reality yeah it's all about finding that balance isn't it of being honest with yourself and with other people but also helping other people feel empowered to um yeah to keep plodding on um to put one foot in front of the other and um of this balance of leaning into the messiness and and not shying away from grief um and and really sort of um showing up I think is an expression you like to use as well and being present for that messiness and the grief um whether it's in your own life or other people's lives um but at the same time finding hope where you can um to try things again or in your own time um and I think yeah definitely getting back into yoga and dance um and trying again for another pregnancy and and looking for that hope um all the while thinking it's not going to work again um i'm just never going to have a living baby this is not my story obviously um and then just battling those thoughts um and just getting through the anxiety <laughs> of subsequent pregnancies um and spending a lot of time at the hospital um being checked out for all sorts of reasons um and again had a really great team at the hospital looking after me um but just yeah trying to find um empowerment and hope um and and i certainly found that that um if I was informed about what could go wrong and the things that I can I could control in pregnancy, but also knowing that there are some things that I can't control, that if things go wrong, it's not my fault. Um, and I think some people that that is too terrifying, and I completely understand that. But for me, that was quite freeing to think 
there are things beyond my control. There are things I can do. I can be empowered. I can be informed. I can monitor my baby, baby's movements. Um, I can eat the right things and do yoga. But ultimately, I've got to let go uh, of some of this control um, and just hope for the best. Um, and we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly it's a hard road. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't work out for a lot of women um, who want to have babies. They don't get that living baby at the end of um, infertility or at the end of um, pregnancy loss. Um, and I've met many women in that um, predicament. Um, so so it's just I think um, as women being really aware of um, that we all have different choices, you know, um, and. Um, whether we want to have children or not or whether we want to have children and it doesn't um, happen or we, we have got children but um, they've died um, but we still think of ourselves as, yeah, there's just there's such a spectrum and you just don't know what someone's going through um, when you meet them on the street or in a yoga studio or, um, yeah, just I suppose, um, and you've said it before, just approaching people with kindness because you just have no idea of what someone is going through in their life it so does come back to that doesn't it just to go yeah you just have no idea I mean around all of this or anything else in people's lives like yeah so for someone who has experienced stillbirth or a neonatal death or a miscarriage where would you kind of encourage people to go for me, um, reaching out to some of the organisations that we were given information on in hospital, um, I'm a talker, as you might have noticed, <laughs> being a teacher as well. Um, so a face-to-face -face support group um, was vital for my, um, for my healing and for finding um, my new community. So I didn't fit into... Um, your conventional mother's group. Um, so finding a group of um, parents who understood my pain um, and the position I was in was just so important. So that group was one run through SANS. Um, SANS and Red Nose have now merged. Um, so, so people... Um, at the moment, with COVID, obviously there aren't there aren't many face to face opportunities happening, um, but there are online support groups, um, and there's so much available to people um, through Facebook groups, and there's just a plethora of information out there. Personally, I found that too overwhelming. Um, I would sort of it'd be like three a.m. with me sobbing, going down some rabbit hole on the internet. wasn't ultimately helpful for me, but it is for some people. Um, so definitely reading heaps of books that are available out there. There are um, podcasts um, that are out there, Glimmer and the Still Aware podcast. Um, but for me, tapping into a face-to-face -face support group with um, Sans Red Nose um, and getting involved, um, volunteering for Still Aware um, at Pregnancy Expos where we hand out information to um, pregnant or expecting parents um, about ways that they can have a safe pregnancy, so monitoring movements, um, sleeping on your side. Um, that's been really helpful for me in empowering, um, channeling some of my grief into um, positive, hopeful things, I guess. Um, 
but they're but I understand that face-to-face support groups aren't for everyone um so but the option at the moment during lockdown with um online groups I know has been really helpful for a lot of people particularly um women in regional areas who there might not actually be a face-to-face group in their town but they can um via zoom they can be part of a group which is really um wonderful so yeah but just um and obviously for me seeing a psychologist who specialized in pregnancy loss um has been huge so um having that external support and um, professional support um and also just keeping keeping your good friends and family around you um yeah um and maybe it's a season to let go of some relationships or friendships that just aren't really serving you um at the time so that's definitely what i what i would recommend and what helped me oh thank you so much Claire, I feel like I've learned so much from you over the years and it has really felt like a real honour and a, a privilege to be alongside you in some way through all of this. And I feel like, yeah, I've just learned so much from how you have handled various steps along the way. And I think even things about just that whole thing of you being a mother and how important it was that at that point that you were a mum, I feel like I really learned that from you and that has applied for me in supporting other women who have had, you know, babies die soon after being born or I guess there would be stillbirths. And as I sort of step into console and to be alongside in the, the grief to also make sure that I do in some way acknowledge the transition that they've made to being mother and that that is something to be, I feel like celebrate is not quite necessarily the right word, but there's something in it. I know what you mean. And sometimes, yeah, women don't want that. And then sometimes they do, but it might be months or years after the loss. Um, but I guess it's just, yeah, being um, being aware of um, bereaved parents having choice as well and, and getting to make decisions and having some autonomy about how they grieve and and whether they want to view themselves as as parents and yeah it's messy but it's um yeah like you said if you're if you're present with someone and you're you're listening to them um and you're open to it being a celebration as well as a time of grieving then um yeah you, you can't really go go too wrong with that yeah Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You share so beautifully and yeah, it's been really amazing to sit with you and kind of go through it all as a, as a story, I guess, recounted in one sitting rather than kind of in the different stages over the years. Like, I feel like we could sit for another few hours. There's so many different things that I'd love to talk more about, but I really appreciate it. And I have no doubt that your story will touch people's hearts, but hopefully also just encourage people whether they're going through something similar or whether they are supporting friends who have or whether one day they're planning on becoming pregnant and they'll they'll remember, oh, yeah, that's right, it is important that I do think about these different things. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful for your time, your beautiful heart. Thanks, Annie. Thank you for joining me. 
head on over to my website, anniecarter.com.au, where you'll find some free resources to support you in your life and leadership. Please make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And I would really love your help in spreading the word about Yes You. So if you have friends who you think would enjoy it, please let them know. You could take a minute to write a review saying why you're loving it. And you could screenshot this episode and share it on your social media. Make sure you tag me on Instagram at underscore Annie Carter. Until next time, let me remind you that you, yes, you are awesome. And I'm so glad you're here. Sending you big love and I'll chat to you soon.